Hello, I'm Joanna Lumley. I'm in my garden in London, and I'm walking down the garden path to the music room. In there, I'll find my husband, the composer and conductor, Stephen Barlow. Now, we've been married almost 40 years, and I think, however long you've been with someone, you have questions that you'd like to ask your partner. So this podcast is my chance to ask Stephen the questions I've always wanted to ask him about one of his and my greatest passions, classical music. Welcome to Joanna and the Maestro. Hello, Maestro. Hello, and welcome back to Joanna and the Maestro. Stevie, I should just say this. I've always felt rather as though I've stolen the title here. I've gone, Joanna and the Maestro, <laughs> when quite obviously to anybody listening, it is the Maestro first. So we could we could call this programme Maestro and the Joanna, no, which is a piano no, as well, no, isn't it? No, and it no, could just be no. you playing the piano. No, it's much more sensible the other way around. Is it? Yes, well, of course it is. Is it because I'm And I may have you? some very <laughs> important questions for you. <laughs> well, one of the things which I wanted to talk to you about today, which is something we both absolutely adore, which is, I mean, music, obviously, that's first and foremost, but music in the theatre, which means operas, which means musicals as well. Yeah. And what I wanted to talk about today is that people say to me, oh, I don't know why opera is in such a difficulty, because you see musicals and they're playing to packed houses and they play eight times a week. And why can't opera do the same thing? Why does it need state subsidy? So I want to talk about the whole complex setup of musicals in theatre and operas in theatre. So can we start? First of all, let's assume the opera has been written. So the music has been written. Yeah. Presumably with a big opera, they'll have written it for, as we've discussed before, many, many instruments, or rather as many instruments as they need. But in a music theatre, musical, the pit's going to be sort of smaller and it has to be kept to a much a more limited orchestra, hasn't it? That's an assumption one might make. But actually, I think most of Andrew Lloyd Webber's musicals these days, over the last decades, have started off with pretty full orchestra. Mm. It's only later, when the run becomes incredibly long with the success, they begin to reduce it a little. And little by little the number of players they use gets less. Oh, how do they bulk the sound up then? Do they, well, because it's they, got to sound you, the same, hasn't you, it? Let's put it this way. In the 40s and 50s, the age of the wonderful American musicals, they would have been played with full orchestra all the time. Mm. And uh, no, it wouldn't have been as large as a symphony orchestra. But you, maybe 50 people in the pit. Well, it, well it, you, 50 is quite large. But in order to get a proper string sound without miking the pit which is fundamentally what is done now with the reduced bands in pits. Mm. An awful lot is miked, probably the whole orchestra, and there might even be a synthesizer at work, you know, electronic keyboard, which can produce all sorts of sounds. So before miking, the musicals would have been done with the full band. But operas have never had that synthesizer, have they? No, no, no. I mean, no. I'm talking about it's not a modern operas, because, which may well because choose them. None but... of opera is miked. No. That's the whole big difference. All the voices, the orchestra, everything is natural ambient sound. Whereas musicals are practically always, the singers practically all eventually head mics eventually. or throat mics or something. Eventually, sort of but West Side Story, when it was first done, requires an, an orchestra. 
And the singers sang out, didn't they? They didn't have mics. That's probably right. Can I just say here what I find so thrilling about live performances? When I was a child and growing up in the Far East, there weren't live performances, and so we weren't taken to performances of anything. We saw one film a year. Came back to England, and I had a particularly kindly uncle, Uncle Ivor, who took all of us children, the cousins and my sister Eleni and I, all up to London to see a show that had just come over from New York. And it was My Fair Lady with Rex Harrison and Julie Andrews and Stanley Holloway. And I don't think I've ever been so stunned in my life. And then at the very end, Rex Harrison, I've grown accustomed to her face. I mean, even now, when I even speak about it or listen to it, tears go racing down. Fabulous. I will never forget that live performance. Musical theatre, a musical, but live. I'm very grateful she's a woman, and so easy to forget. Rather like a habit one can always break. And yet I've grown accustomed to the trace of something in the air, accustomed to her. But these days, I'm afraid amplification has become the thing. Everybody's got used to huge sounds, and you've got a sound guy mm. who builds up the sound at the back of the auditorium. Which or, can be very thrilling in, in sort of yes, but things it, like Tommy, rock musicals like that. They need a massive wall of I sound. I know. So that's a big change from yes. the way musicals used to be. They would have been ambient sound. Yeah. So all the great musical singers would have been without microphones. I think the point is this, that when new, really big new musicals start out, they want to record the soundtrack and get the disc done mm. before the run starts so that it, it, it rides on the crest of a wave. And audiences get used to that. Like Phantom of the Opera, you, people are still seeing it all over the world. Yeah. The orchestras will be very small. It's more like a band, a pit band, yeah. all mic'd up. So that's the... It's different, isn't it? Yes, totally different. So when they can play eight shows a week, and sometimes they have swing, both singers and performers and musicians as well, and swing means somebody who can stand in for somebody. Yeah. They play eight shows a week to packed houses. And people say, well, look, they don't get any state backing. So why do operas, which don't play eight shows a week, why do they need... So I want to talk about what is the expense of operas and musicals, because well, they're hugely expensive let's, entertainments. Let's just look at this. An audience comes in for an opera, and they will hear a full orchestra and cast and chorus, and they will see the performance. What they cannot possibly know is all the immense array of skills, crafts, arts that have gone into creating the set mm -hmm. and the costumes. I mean, it's the same for you in the theatre. Just run off a list of the people that are backstage, dressers. We've got all the creative, we've got the technicians, we've got stage management, we've got company management, we've got all the wig makers, costume makers, as opposed to costume designers, yep. dancing coaches for, for movements and things yep. like this. Then you've got, of course, all the staff who actually staff the house, who hand out the programmes and yep. tickets, the ushers and things like this. It's a huge army. It's like a circus. It's colossal. So I know in the theatre, when you have a play with only six actors, how many stage managers do you have? Because there will be somebody running the show and there will be 
possibly a props person? Or I mean, how many and, stage and then managers? If, well, then if you're playing a modern These play... These are the people at every single performance. At every performance. If you're doing a, a modern play in modern clothes that people can get into easily, you probably wouldn't need a dresser each. But when you're playing in full costume in, let's say, a traditional production of Cherry Orchard, for instance, you're wearing all those dresses, you've got wigs, you've got all those things. All those things have to be cleaned and prepared and you have to have your hair pinned back, you have the caps put on, then the wig, which has been dressed between each performance, figged up and made to look good again, put on and all the different hats and things. So then you've got all the wardrobe mistresses. But if you're blessed playing a modern six-hander, which is in an ordinary, let's say, a flat in South London, and it's all playing as if it's on the same day and nobody changes their clothes. You know, it's, mu- it's minimal compared with Turandot. So here immediately we've got an answer to how plays can be more commercially successful because your outlay on every performance is a fraction of what an opera might need with, say, 50 orchestral musicians, mm. 40 in the chorus, you're up to 100 in no time, performing every night. Yes. So all of those people will be working five nights a week and rehearsing. So that's an expense. Some operas, you see, are huge commercial successes. But opera companies rely on La Boheme and Traviata, Tosca, Carmen. They rely on those operas to fill the houses. Because people know them. Well, it's the same with musicals. Yes, Forgive me, but Sharabangs come up from Essex mm-hmm. to see to have a night out at, at, at a West End musical, yes. which they may have seen several times before. But one of the reasons I think that opera singers can't sing eight times a week is because, because they're not mic'd and because their voice production is so very, very different and so highly skilled and trained in the voice in itself an instrument, cannot be overstressed or overstrained. And some of these big operas we've been talking about have got giant sings, as you would say, in it, mm. you know, an enormous range, an exhausting and colossal thing. You can't risk damaging a voice. So what would you say, two times a week, three times a week ever for opera? It depends slightly. If it's a Wagner opera, and you know they're much longer, and the orchestras are much bigger, and the music itself requires more stamina because the phrases will be longer and you have to carry a lot of vocal weight, strength and stamina to do those roles. Twice a week is maximum. Mm. Just listen to Tom Krauser singing the song to the evening star from Wagner's Tannhäuser. It's his breath control and mastery of legato, the smoothness of sound which makes this so very difficult to perform. We'd love to hear from you, our lovely listeners. So if you've got questions, comments or suggestions, please get in touch on hello at joannaandthemaestro.com. Thank you. I can remember in Holland once you, I can't remember, now isn't this shameful? I can't remember actually what the opera was, but the great Dario Fo, the great extraordinary Italian was directing it. And I remember at some stage there was a girl, one of the principal singers, 
on a swing, mm. eating an apple and singing aria. And I thought, <laughs> in costume, in full kind of floating dresses and things. And I thought the complications, I mean, having to, having to multitask, because her most important thing is the singing, but she's also acting it so that the singing and the acting becomes one and the same. But then she's also on a swing, mm. which she's got to get on and eventually get off. Yeah. And the swing has got to be at a certain sort of timing. Mm-hmm. And she's apparently crunching away at an apple. I mean, these are fabulous. Yeah, that difficult. was extraordinary. And sometimes yeah. it must be difficult for the performers to have to take on board the dreams that the director has, where he says they'll <clears throat> they'll all run down, and their clothes are flowing and rushing, and you go, but they're going down steps, and all these clothes are so long, they'll trip and stumble. I can remember seeing Lucia di Lammermoor, and there was a terrifically steep set of steps at the side of the stage, and they were in full costume. And Lucia had to come down the steps, which she couldn't see because they were so steep. And she had a vast, long dress on. And she was singing a very overwrought aria. Mm. And she was in a wig and everything. Mm. I don't remember even if there was a handrail. I think she just had to Mm. kind of come down. I could hardly hear or watch it because of my terror that she would trip and stumble. So these have got to be things that have got to be taken. You've got to modify everything. So it's got to be possible, hasn't it? It's the art of the possible. We can safely say that any set that has steps on it... It's a nightmare. It's problematic. And I, most stages have a rake, don't they? Yeah. Or quite a lot of stages have a rake, which means a slope from the back of the stage down to the footlights, as it were, which is very difficult to operate on depending how steep the rake is. Yeah. That's so that the audience can have a better view of the stage. Yep. And in the old days, it was absolutely necessary because the sight lines might not be great and you want to see who's singing, who's talking, where the action mm-hmm. is. It's fabulously complicated. Yes, it is. And they now, make it look as easy as anything. It's so fun to well, come on and just well, sing like I that. I think the whole business of backstage production for any music set, operas, musicals, ballet, I think the backstage element seems so invisible that people wouldn't really credit the amount of skill and and all the career paths that people go through to get there. I mean, for example, when you say a designer, people think, oh, well, you design nice costumes. and you, But no, to design a stage set, and you've been on some extraordinary sets. Yeah. I often think of the wonderful John Napier. Mm, he's a genius. Whose sets were amazingly rich. And the thing is, they offered opportunities for yeah. a director... To use, didn't they? Yes, they did. And, they've, and they have all kinds of things, like they have trap doors, which people can come in and out of, but they have revolves where a kind of disc in the middle of the stage can turn around and either present a completely different scene and mm. people can hop on or off it or have, or have something like that. But then we have things which are trucked in, which means that parts of ready-dressed stage can travel onto the stage yep. whilst another bit is trucking off at the back. And who's pushing them on and exactly. off? Exactly. And then at the back, some sort of curtain or tabs, as we say in the theatre, comes down and that bit is flown, which means literally that set is picked up and winched out of sight. And another yep. one is dropped down completely silently, organised so that it's in exactly the right position and secured. All this is going on so, out of sight. So say who is doing the winching up, who's the guy or the, or the girl... The flyman. The flyman. Now, where did they start? What did they start doing? I don't know. I think it's brilliant. I mean, if I started again, I might like to work backstage and all these things because I think I've helped out once we were doing the Cherry Orchard in Dundee 
and we had a very, very meagre budget. It was divine. It was wonderful. I loved doing it. But there was very little money to be had. Mm. And I helped with painting. Um, The chairs had to look old-fashioned. They had to look 18th century chairs. And I was helping Monica to to paint up the chairs. I'd see what she wanted to do, and I could do it. And to dress the hats, which were those beautiful sort of Edwardian-type <laughs> hats, and to, co- to cover them with flowers and bows or however you had to make them. We were all working away, and I found that was so fascinating. And I think that it's terribly dangerous when people say, are you going to go into the theatre? They immediately see you centre stage taking a bow with bunches of lilies being yeah, thrown at you. Yeah. They don't see that what theatre and opera... And performances is actually the mass of people behind, the mass of people. Wouldn't you say that all performers absolutely love the backstage Yes, they do, and they rely on them. We have such an enormous respect for every tiny job. Look, I I said, who pushes the trucks on? Well, there will be stage hands who are utterly, utterly expert. And then also damage happens during performances. Things happen, things go slightly wrong. And like a swan, the play goes on or the show goes on. And backstage, they're desperately trying to fix something or rig something and make signals to go, the cup won't be on the table. The cup is coming in on a chair, (laughs) on a chair. And so the chair comes in and the the performer just flicks the eye and suddenly sees a chair travelling on instead of a lovely table with a cup of coffee on it or whatever it is. Sometimes (laughs) even pushed by the technician (laughs) in full view. I love it. I mean, the thrall of this takes it completely different world from filming, where if it doesn't work, you stop and you do it again. Yep. And the editor can scissor it together so it all looks as though it works. Mm-hmm. On stage, you are your own editor. And the stage and the manager pit. is controlling every Everything. minute of it. Yeah. So just say from half an hour in a show you're doing, yeah. what's When what I get happens? to the theatre, I always get to the theatre at least an hour before, even if I'm not on in the first scene. Always at least an hour before, and sometimes if you've got complicado wigs and stuff to put on, maybe a bit before that. You want to put all your stuff down, get out of your day clothes, and start beginning to turn yourself into the thing. I've always done my own makeup. Most actors do. I think quite a lot of opera singers, unless they're wearing something like Turandot's sort of Chinese Beijing yeah, they, type beautiful makeup. They may do basics. They, they may do, do basics, but there's a special makeup room and a wigs room. Wigs room is huge. Which will all be timed so that you will turn up at a specific exactly. time. And, and the wigs wig will have been on. dressed between each performance. They'll have been redressed yep. in case there's been a fight on stage or something where it all gets tousled or somebody takes a rose from her hair and throws it. That's all got to be set back again and all those things have got to be done. When the tabs, when the great curtains go up or the play starts, however it starts, if there aren't curtains, it doesn't matter. When it starts, it starts punctly like this. And when they say we're going to have to hold the curtain tonight... We hope that the audience won't know. You can hear a bit of sussing. I thought it was opening. Will we catch our bus at the end of it? And all that begins to go on. Anxious audience going, it's 10 minutes now. I thought there was whatever. Because some, some drama may have happened backstage. Somebody poured some coffee over her dress or something, you know? Who knows what on earth happened? Anyway, there's always time. So there's time. So you get a half hour call. You get a quarter of an hour call. Then you get beginners. When do Or oh, five minute call. Then you get beginners. When do you do your... Mouth exercises. Peter O'Toole's warm-up was to just go, ha! And that was the end of it. <laughs> but, but properly trained drama students go on stage before the audience is allowed in. Do they? Mm, yeah, they go on stage and just do a few exercises on stage to hear if their voice is carrying. 
And quite often in a new theatre, what you'll do is you'll ask one of the cast members to go right to the back of the gods, which is the very top tier, if the theatre has that, or the back of the dress circle or wherever it is, and to hear if they can be heard. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Because the point of anything is, is that you are communicating this with the audience. And they go, very bit quiet round here, Diana, bit quiet round here. And you go, oh, oh. And sometimes if the stage, if you're lucky, it's set out in front of you like a fan. But sometimes it's almost in the round or like Chichester, it goes like this. It yeah. sort of bends backwards. Yeah. And it's got a great big first floor, which comes in here, which means that the people sitting right in the back there, you've got to somehow project your voice so it can get into the back of that and reach around there. And so you approach, a, you have a scattergun approach, which means you start a speech over here. You say, but surely, Lady Farquharson, when I told you to bring the fan here and you move your head around so that everyone in the house can see that you're speaking and you draw it back round again. Because if you just spoke like this, they would not have any, I'm pointing, people, I'm giving a kind of demonstration here. <laughs> the people ex on the extreme right hand won't have any knowledge of what you're saying or doing. So you've who, got to be prepared to... Who designed a theatre like that? Because if, you, it, if you're turning around and talking to the people on the far right, then the people on the far left can't hear you. Yes, but that's, that's the scattergun. That's this, I think, weirdly enough, it was Laurence Olivier had a lot to do with the planning of that. I don't know why, but rather like the great Dutch theatre, the Concertgebouw. So what the musicians like is a shoebox. Yes. What the, is we, and what we like is um, Frank Matcham Theatre, where it is very close, strangely enough, even though it might hold 750 people, they all feel so close, they can see your face. The sight lines are such that they can see every gesture. Mm. So even if you're apparently whispering or speaking to somebody in an undertone, mm. they can all hear you and you don't have to boom out. The bigger the house is, the more you have to boom out. And I think that one of the reasons that people are very fond, not only in musicals, but in plays now, of having a mic either in the front of their hair or up here or in their clothes or fastened onto them mm. at some stage, coming over their shoulder and round here, mm. is that they can speak to what is now the most accepted form of listening to performance, which is usually on television mm. or on iPods or whatever, which is recorded sound. And yes. people are used to people speaking if necessarily only this loud. Oh, no. And they want to be able to do that on stage. The technique in the old days was to be able to speak sotto voce like that, the bottom of it very quietly, and yet the whole house would hear you. But that requires, I remember talking to Harry Silverstein, my friend from Chicago, the director, opera director, and he very clearly articulated an argument that said that the American style of acting, i.e. born of films, was much more naturalistic and English acting was over-exaggerated. And it struck me that that wasn't quite fair because English acting comes from a different tradition. In the outdoors at the globe, yeah. people had to have a way of expressing everything that was really clear. Yeah. And you couldn't whisper unless you did a, what's called a stage, stage whisper. whisper. And I thought that was slightly unfair, but it is a case nowadays. I mean, I, maybe I'm going deaf. I get You're it checked not. all the time. You're not. Because conductors are neurotic about their hearing, and my hearing's extremely good. But when I go to the theatre, sometimes I find myself actually not catching yeah. everything that's going on. That's odd, isn't it? You see, we've learned so much from American performances. One is their naturalistic thing, which was sort of 
the Marlon Brando kind of lovely mumbling, which we've all admired so much, sometimes taken it into a, a level where literally you and I, I know we're old people now, Stevie. <laughs> well, you're younger than me, but we're both getting on a bit. And and, to, and we kind of go, what, what are they saying? Particularly the dimness of light. And you go, it's in the dark. A, I can't see it. B, I can't hear it. This is very difficult. Lots of people write into newspapers go, I would have liked that, but I couldn't hear a word they were saying. So the, there's got to be a happy medium between this. I know that when I work with a lot of with American actors on film, mm. quite often, even though we're only as far apart you as... You can't this, hear what they're saying I can't hear what they're saying to me as a, as a character in the, no. in the scene because they've got so used to speaking like this, which can yeah. be picked up by their microphones, but nobody else can hear it. But their voice will sound ravishing because it'll be tuned up. But the other people, sadly, can't hear them. I say, I'm sorry, we're going to have to stop there because I'm so sorry. I literally couldn't hear what you were saying. Well, I'm you glad, can see why I don't work very I'm often. glad we don't have this problem in the opera world <laughs> where it still exists that the orchestra of 65 will still be there when you make your debut as Sophie in Rosen Cavalier. And if you can't be heard... Above the orchestra. Because I take huge care myself to make sure that that balance is right. Mm. But you also have to make clear sometimes to singers that they must project something. Yeah. And they will always be alert too to a director who's turning them in the wrong direction away from the audience. They will be concerned and will often turn to a conductor and say... Do you think this can work? And sometimes one, one can make it work. But the point is articulation and projection and diction remains in the opera house absolutely critical. What is, to me, thrilling about live performance of any kind, now we can talk about plays or musicals or opera, is that you'll only see that performance that once it will always be slightly different. And sometimes at the end of the show, people will come off starry-eyed and go, it seemed to be great. <laughs> it seemed to be great tonight. Everything worked like magic. And other nights you think it was a catastrophe. Apparently, it wasn't. The audience didn't pick up on the things that went Why, badly wrong. Are we just all bonkers? No, because we're human beings and everything is slightly different. You try to do your best at all times. And sometimes, for some reason, because we're human, it's better than other times. Yes, it's really odd. Often I've come out of a performance feeling a little miffed that certain things didn't go well or I didn't think I was doing it very well because it didn't feel, I didn't feel the way that I, I wanted to feel. And you can meet someone from the audience, someone who really knows what they're talking about, and they'll say, wow, that was wonderful. And I find it very difficult to say, no, it wasn't, because the truth of the matter is we cannot always know mm. how a performance is going for an audience member. Isn't it thrilling? Should we go tonight to hear something? Should we see something? Should we fill the next few days, Stevie? Should we stop doing these podcasts for just a minute now? Because we're now going to go and see a matinee and an evening performance and tomorrow the same thing again and again and again so we can steep ourselves in the magic I'll of live performance. I'll be asking you questions about that next time. <laughs> Stevie, you've, well, your life is music and performances, but is there something that you think we could end on that would show your sheer delight in live performance? <laughs> well, seeing as we've been talking about musicals, I really didn't get to see many musicals when I was younger. But recently I've seen fantastic productions of 42nd Street 
and five guys named Mo. And the palpable electricity in the theatre for those. But the one musical I really wish of in my lifetime that I'd actually been to see, wait for it, was Jesus Christ Superstar, which I think is a masterpiece in its way. Is there a particular piece of that that you would... How about the titled song? <laughs> Thank you, Maestro. They want to know... In this episode, you heard the following music. I've Grown Accustomed to Her Face, written by Frederick Lowe and performed by Rex Harrison, Lerner and Lowe, Marnie Nixon and Bill Shirley. It was published by Warner Chappelle North America Limited and the record label was Sony Music Entertainment. Tannhauser, Act 3, Wie Todeshahnung, O du mein Holder Abenstern, by Richard Wagner. It was performed by Tom Krauss, the Weiner Open Orchestra, and conducted by Argeo Quadri. The record label was Universal Music Operations Limited. Superstar, written by Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice. It was performed by Zubin Varla, Andrew Lloyd Webber, and the 1996 London cast of Jesus Christ Superstar. The publisher was Universal MCA Music Limited, and the record label was the Really Useful Group Limited under exclusive license to Polydor Limited, a division of Universal Music Operations. All music for the intro is supplied courtesy of Naxos Music UK. Mozart's Exultate Jubilate K165, performed by Pretty Coles, Camerata Casovia, and conducted by Johannes Wildner, licensed courtesy of Naxos Music UK Limited.